Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. You know, I'm a big fan of chaos. Chaos is one of my favorite things towards the end of a Major League Baseball season. Unfortunately, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, decided with this new playoff format that he would take away chaos from us. And what I mean by that is instead of one-game playoffs and three-way ties and four-way tie scenarios, and there'll have to be a playoff on Monday and a playoff on Tuesday, everything is now determined by tiebreakers. So my feelings have been hurt for the last two years. Like, there isn't chaos anymore. But then something happened on Thursday night at City Field. The umpires decided if Rob Manfred isn't going to give us chaos, we'll create chaos. Because in the top of the ninth inning, after the New York Met bullpen decided to very quickly blow a one nothing lead against the Miami Marlins, thank you very much, Anthony Kay. Thank you very much, Buck Showalter, for believing I got to go lefty-lefty. And it didn't work. The umpires in the top of the ninth inning in a rainstorm at City Field decided to stop the game. And just to be clear, that's when we're recording. They just stopped the game. Now, usually on Rico Bronio, we wait till the series is over, no matter what time of night it is or what time of day it is. And then right after, we record the podcast. But I said to Pete, I said, Pete, I looked at the weather forecast. They're not playing. They stopped the game. And by the way, if I'm wrong, you'll know I'm wrong. By the time you listen to this podcast, you'll say, hey, Evan, you got that weather thing wrong. And I usually do get the weather thing wrong. But the weather is so bad in New York, it's supposed to continue to rain for days at a time. So I believe that the umpires, by stopping the game, created chaos. Because if they don't pick up this game, if I'm right that this delay will last and last and last, If this game matters on Monday after the regular season is over, we're going to have to not restart the game, but pick up the game from the ninth inning with the Marlins up two to one. So imagine in any scenario possible where this game matters because the Marlins and the Cubbies are fighting for that last wild card spot. Not only would there have to be a game Monday, which is not complete lunacy. It's happened before, but you'd play Monday by starting it in the ninth inning of a two-to-one game. So, chaos. And and the best thing is because this final game is a crap show, like we saw with the the, the fact that you got Kay in there and to read Garrett. I mean, Phil Bickford was warming up. They had no one really to go to because yesterday's doubleheader, the bullpen was basically overused. If somehow the starting pitching goes deep and you don't use these relievers and you start this, go back and, and play this game on Monday, You've got a whole slate of guys you can go to if this game goes to extra innings. That's true. But the problem is with these extra inning rules, even if it did go extra innings, the whole game's going to last 20 minutes. <laughs> They're going to make the Marlins come back to New York 
And who's going to this game, by the way? Like, if you oh. had tickets for Thursday night's game, are you going to go back on Monday afternoon for potentially 10 minutes? Like, I'm not even kidding you. The game could last 10 minutes. So, obviously, full transparency, we are recording this as they stopped the game. If somehow they restart the game, we apologize. This edition of Rico Bronio will not have any coverage of what the Mets did in the bottom of the ninth inning. So for all intents and purposes, the Mets are likely to lose this series whenever this game is resumed, if this game is resumed. Uh, but they did split the doubleheader on Wednesday. So we'll go through some of these games. There's a few things I want to get to. Francisco Lindor had a 30-30 season officially over the last couple of days. Does that still matter? And obviously the surprising injury to Jeff McNeil, which sort of came out of nowhere. As far as these games are concerned, I will start with the way this series was supposed to begin, and that was not with the umpire screwing it up because of the weather, but really the Mets screwing it up. And I, I made my opinion very clear on the air a couple of days ago on the fan, where my issue was not with the grounds crew, because I, I, I heard and certainly read, and Steve Gelbs had a good report about why the field was so soaked, that it's actually normal a few days before a homestand begins to not have the field covered by a tarp, even if it's raining. And then you've got a few days, it dries off, you get the field ready. Apparently, this is a normal thing. And who am I to judge? I'm no grounds crew expert. So I'm not even mad at the fact that the Mets had the field uncovered on Saturday. The forecast changed. It was a lot of rain. It never had time to dry. And so by the time they were trying to get that field ready for Tuesday night's game, they couldn't get it ready in time. I understand that. And the field conditions looked awful, and you want this game and these games, games that matter, to be played on safe field conditions. So I totally understand that. My biggest issue was the fact that the gates were opened. My biggest issue was if you can see at 5 o'clock, hey, we may have an issue with this field, then why bother trying to get the game in? That was my biggest problem. And then not communicating with your fans in the ballpark. And then to top it all off, an hour and a half later, you postpone the game. And then Steve Cohen tweets out an apology to the Marlins. F the Marlins. The apology is to the fans. You know, Steve, the customers that you raise ticket prices on. You know, the customers that showed up at City Field on a Tuesday night to watch the Mets take on the Marlins. Those are the people that deserved an apology. So it was a bad, bad way to start the series. Now, selfishly, I can't stand the Miami Marlins. Selfishly, I would like to see the Marlins miss the playoffs. So I get that the rainout and subsequent doubleheader affected the Marlins in a negative way. And that part's great. I celebrate that part. I've got no issue with that part. But I don't like the treatment of the fans. I don't like not knowing what's going on. And I certainly don't like even attempting to play this game. Now, could the Mets have made a deal, which actually would be pretty ironic considering what's happening right now, where they said to the Marlins, look, we get that a doubleheader is not fair. We get that it alters your rotation in a big way. So here's what we'll do. Single game on Wednesday, single game on Thursday. And if the game matters, which it's certainly looking like it will because of the Marlins-Cubs pennant race, we'll come back and we'll play game 162 on Monday. The Mets could have offered that. I understand the players would not be up for that because the players want to go home. Season ends Sunday, 6.30. They all want to leave. They don't want to have to play. Obviously, this rain situation changes that. 
So I could get why the Marlins would say, hey, could you do that? We don't think it's necessarily fair or ideal to have to have a doubleheader in the final week of the year. But I think that's a players association call. I think the Met players would have the right to say, no, thank you. But as far as screwing the Marlins is concerned, whatever. F them. I felt bad for the fans. That's the way I looked at it. And I also looked at this series as not that it's life and death, not that I'm losing sleep, especially over the way game three was going, blowing a one nothing lead in the ninth inning with Grant Hartwig and um, uh, Anthony Kay. But I want to beat the Marlins. I do. I, I was thinking about it. I, I, I want to beat them. They stuck it to us in 07. They stuck it to us in 2008. Like, yeah, I want to stick it to them. And right now they're in a flat-footed race with the Chicago Cubs. They're not that far off from the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Reds are only a game and a half behind. So it's a tight race, and the Mets have a chance to make a major impact. With that said, let's not forget, even coming into this series, the Mets had beaten the Marlins pretty good. Coming into this series, the Mets had won seven of 10 games against Miami. Now, a lot of that was earlier in the season. Remember, they played a lot earlier in the season, back when we were naive, back when we thought the Mets had a chance, back when we thought, oh, the Mets are beating up on the Marlins. Little did we know that standings-wise, it would be far different. So I don't ignore the fact that despite what may have happened in game two of the doubleheader and what certainly looks like it's happening in the finale of this three-game series against Miami, that overall in the season series, the Mets had a negative impact on the Miami Marlins, and I do appreciate that. They do play a doubleheader on Wednesday. I was planning on going to the second game. I did go to the second game. I was very nervous because I wanted to see Kodai Senga pitch. So I wasn't sure who gets game one, who gets game two. We saw Joey Lucchese get game one, and Joey pitched great. Look, of all the, the guys who have kind of entered this rotation, and I don't even know if I'd say they're battling for a spot in 2024 because I think a lot of that depends on how aggressive the Mets are in free agency and the trade market into adding to their starting pitching. But Lucchese, David Peterson, Tyler McGill, Jose Budo, no doubt, they're they're, they're, they're something. I don't know if they're competing for a rotation spot or if it's to be the swing man out of the bullpen or trade bait, but all those guys are trying to prove something. And I think at times, Lucchese's looked the best. And he looked very, very good in the opener of this doubleheader. Six innings, two runs. Pete Alonzo was tremendous, had a four for four day, which is nice to see considering how bad his slumps have been. Hit a home run, got the 46, 46 home runs, 117 RBIs. And Francisco Lindor made his push for 30-30. He came into this series sitting at 27 home runs. So certainly no lock to get those three home runs to get him to 30 and get him that 30-30 season. He had his 28th home run. And it was all around a nice, relaxing 11-2 victory. I was on the air at the time, so I'd glance up. I'd see Pete hit a home run, and I felt damn good. Got the city feel for game two with a doubleheader. And it was like benchmark night at City Field because you had Senga get the strikeouts that got him to 200, making him only the second rookie in the history of this franchise to strike out 200 guys. And I want to be fair about something. This is not a knock on Kodai. This is a compliment to Japan and a compliment to those leagues. I don't think Senga's really a rookie because I think Japanese baseball is almost on par with Major League Baseball. It's definitely above AAA. I don't think there's any doubt. Is it on an equal level as MLB? No, I don't think it is necessarily equal, but it's quadruple A. Whatever you want to call it, it, 
it's above AAA. It's above being a minor league. So it's not even about age with Senga, where I say, yeah, I don't know if he's a rookie. It's out of respect for that league. And I haven't always felt that way because I didn't know. I don't think a lot of us knew. But I think enough guys have come over where you say, it's a good league. You know, so is he really a rookie? He's not a Doc Gooden rookie. I can tell you that right now. Doc was a teenager. So I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter. He still struck out 200 guys. And he did that in, you know, 166 innings or whatever it was. And Kodai put the exclamation point on a really good year. He gave up the two solo home runs, the leadoff home run of John Birdie, the home run of Jesus Sanchez, but he mixed in a lot of unhittable ghost fork balls in the midst. He did throw a lot of pitches over five innings, but a really solid performance by Kodai. Five innings, two runs, and if you want to consider this a milestone, he kept the ERA under three and completed a really good first year as a New York Met. He goes out and he makes 29 starts. He throws 166 innings. He tacks up the 200 strikeouts. He has a sub three ERA. And he goes into the offseason as the unquestioned ace of the New York Mets. Will that change during the offseason? Can that change during the offseason? Just think about it. How many guys are out there that the Mets could sign or realistically acquire that you would say is the ace of the Mets and would jump ahead of Kodai Senga? Like, how many guys are there? I don't think it's a long list. So Senga puts the exclamation point on things, and then Francisco Lindor. He wanted that 30-30, man. He goes deep in the second. He goes deep in the fourth. And Lindor gets a nice ovation from the crowd. He gets a little tribute, a little screenshot of 30-30. He joins David Wright. He joins Howard Johnson. He joins Darryl Strawberry in a Met history as a 30-30 guy, which is a nice accomplishment. But Pete, tell me if I'm crazy. It doesn't mean as much in 2023. I mean, I'm going to disagree with this because um, for all the naysayers in general, like he's turned out to be one of the top shortstops in the league. So anyone that was critical about him over him this season, I think this put a, you know, a different stamp on it. Do the numbers as a whole reflect differently because you look what Acuna Jr. is doing? I mean, 40 and 70 is just stupid, right? So, yeah, I, I guess maybe you're right. In, in 2023, the numbers don't mean as much, but still, overall, when you look across the board, look at shortstops, he's the best in the league. Well, okay, so here's how I would answer that if we're going to compare him and his season to every other shortstop in Major League Baseball. I would say that Corey Seager has had the best offensive season of any shortstop, and it's not close, but here's the caveat, and this is a big help for Lindor. Corey Seager's missed 50 games. So he's put up these massive numbers, and they are massive. He's at 33 home runs. He's hit more home runs than Lindor. He's driven in 96 runs right where Lindor is, and he's done that in 116 games. He has a thousand OPS. So a lot of it would be, would you rather have the guy that goes out there and puts up massive numbers? And they are massive. They're undisputably the best of any shortstop, but miss 50 games. Or the guy that puts up really good numbers. This is not a knock on Lindor. Really good numbers. Gets you to those 30. Gets you to those 96. Gets you an 800 OPS. But he does it playing every single day. I can make the argument I'd prefer the guy that goes out and plays every single day. 
because now you got 50 games where someone else is playing shortstop. So which one would you rather have? You want the reliability, but I would say Corey Seager's had the best season of any shortstop in Major League Baseball. And the other guy that I would put slightly, not by a lot, slightly ahead of Francisco Lindor is Bobby Wood Jr. When you look at his numbers, he's at 29 home runs, 93 RBI. So very similar. 273 average, sort of similar. An OPS of 802, sort of similar. The only difference is, and it's crazy, it's a tiebreaker. Obviously, defense, Lindor has been tremendous, despite a couple of miscues recently. Bobby Witt's got 49 stolen bases. So, but, but overall, very close numbers. So, very comparable numbers. After that, you're looking at Bo Bichette. You're looking at J.P. Crawford. Uh, Trey Turner and Xander Bogarts now have great years. Obviously, Trey finished pretty strong. The bottom line is this. Me saying 30-30 doesn't mean the same as it used to. Has nothing to do with the kind of year Lindor had. Lindor had a very good year. He did. He had a very good season. Uh, among shortstops, whether he's number one, and obviously I would take Seager, he's number two or he's number three. He's one of the best shortstops in Major League Baseball, and that doesn't account for the fact that he's really, really good defensively. So it's not a comment on his year. It's more, we have made 30-30 because of these new stolen base rules feel just a little bit a little bit less meaningful. Like, and I'll give you an example, specific example. Right now, Ronald Acuna obviously had a 40-40 year, a 40-70 year. Julio Rodriguez has had a 30-30 year. Lindor is out of 30-30 year. I just mentioned Bobby Witt. He needs one home run to have a 30-30 year. Kyle Tucker needs a home run and an RBI to have a 30-30 year. Trey Turner, offseason for him, needs four home runs and a stolen base for a 30-30 year. Not going to get it, but my point is very close. Corbin Carroll needs five home runs for a 30-30 year. And Fernando Tatis needs five home runs and a stolen base for a 30-30 year. So we may not get all those guys to do it. They clearly won't. But it showed you how many more guys have done it. And before this season, I think the record for the most 30-30 years in one year, if I'm not mistaken, was four. So it's just that we're seeing more of it. That, that's, that's my only point. We live in a world now where stolen bases are easier. Obviously, home runs have been popping all over, certainly much more than compared to 25 years ago. And so it's an accomplishment. I don't want to dismiss it. I just think the facts kind of remind you it may mean just a tad less than it would have meant if this happened 10 years ago. So don't take it as a slide on Lindor. It's not a slide on Lindor. Lindor's had a fine year. It's just things are different now. Stolen bases seem to be almost more automatic. But think about what happened in game two. Lindor gets the accomplishment of 30-30. Good for him. Senga gets the accomplishment of 200 strikeouts. Pete in game one hits his 46th home run of the season. And with all these accomplishments, the team sucked. And it kind of reminds me of 1996. 1996, they had three offensive players have historic seasons. Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, and Todd Humley. And they lost 91 games. So it's cool. And it's a nice individual accomplishment for the guys we talked about. But overall, the results for the team were not great. Uh, but the core guys played, man. Even with Jeff McNeil going down with his injury, Jeff McNeil went out and played every day. Alonzo played every day. Lindor played every day. And Nimmo played every day. And it's, it's more of a reminder that McNeil was an issue, especially in the first half. 
but the reasons of the failures was not the core. It wasn't their performance. There were other things, and to me, they're pretty obvious on what led to this season going awry. But when you put the blame out, the old, the totality of Lindor's season is clearly not that. The totality of even Pete's season, despite his awful June, is certainly not that. His June is a part of it. Brandon Nimmo is not that. McNeil is weird because McNeil's final numbers are very mediocre, and he needs to be better. And he wasn't nearly as good as he was a year ago. And his numbers actually got better as the season went on because he finished strong. But even in bringing his stats up, they just weren't enough. The other thing I noticed, by the way, at this game, that they lost 4-2. to two. <laughs> I forgot about that part where they gave up the two runs of the ninth inning because Adam Adovino reminded us that maybe he's not that good, despite overall having a decent season, was that they were Marlin fans at City Field. I don't know if you could hear this on TV, but I certainly felt it in the ballpark. There were a good amount of let's go Marlins chance in the ninth inning of this game. When Brett Beatty made that error in the ninth inning that gave the Marlins the three to two lead, the let's go Marlins chance were exploring, exploding. When Brian De La Cruz got the bases loaded RBI single to put them up by two, let's go Marlins exploding all over City Field. And I got to tell you, I find it infuriating. Marlins fans. Did you even know Marlins fans existed before they decided to show up at City Field and chant, let's go Marlins? I had never met one, Pete. I didn't know they existed. The only Marlin guy I know is, is the Marlin man that sits there with the orange jacket. That's the only guy I know Marlin-wise. Only guy? Only guy I ever knew. As far as this third game that we are recording after the umpires decided to take all the players off the field, and I don't think they'll restart, but again, if you're listening right now, you'd know the answer. Nimmo gets hurt in the fifth inning, diving really an inning earlier when he dove for that fly ball and he missed it. Ronnie Mauricio gives you a little defensive miscue by not being able to catch a pop-up off the bat of Nick Fortes. But it was all bailed out by David Peterson, who put together, in a lot of ways, one of the best starts of his major league career, especially because Buck pushed him. Six innings, no runs. He had walked four guys. He had thrown 98 pitches. And Buck said, you're not done. Why not? Your next start, well, you may not have a next start. (laughs) Your next appearance may be pitching in Port St. Lucie, Florida, when you audition to become a left-handed arm out of the bullpen. So I may as well push you. And he responded with a 1-2-3-7 thing. I thought that was very impressive. He capped off his season 113 pitches, seven scoreless innings. While it doesn't change my view on him, I don't think it changes anybody's view on him. Kudos to David Peterson. Now let's get to the weirdest effing part of this game because everything about this was so crazy. The Marlins have the bases loaded. This was actually in that fifth inning when Ronnie Mauricio extended the inning by not being able to catch that pop-up. There's a ground ball to shortstop and Francisco Lindor decides, I'm going to throw to second base. A throw to second base, even though he clearly had enough time to throw to first, get the third out, inning is over, great, David Peterson escapes. He throws to second, it's clearly not in time, and Xavier Edwards, who's running into second base, falls off second base, which allows Mauricio, who's on top of him, to tag him. Great, I think that part is pretty clear. He's out, he overran the base, but did the run score in time? So now, 
we're all looking to see, did he score first? Because this is now a timing play since it's no longer a force out. He was safe at second. He was out upon rounding second base. So all this to me is like, okay, makes sense. But now we got to see, did the run score? And it's clear the run did not score. So instead of it being one nothing Marlins, it should be 0-0. But what was so fascinating to me, because I don't really think the play is that complicated, and I think I described it decently well, if you didn't see it, is that the umpire who's announcing the challenge made it seem like it was the most confusing thing of all time. So the Mets are challenging this, and the Marlins are challenging and then it took eight minutes. <laughs> they couldn't figure it out. And I'm watching this saying, it's pretty easy. He overran second. He's out, clearly. He did not score in time, the runner from third. Run doesn't count. And it may have been one of the longest delays I think I've ever seen for replay. Or maybe the second longest delay I've ever seen. But they finally get it right. The run doesn't score. yippity doo da. And then Rafael Ortega gets the supposed game-winning hit in the eighth inning. And the Met bullpen blows it in the ninth inning. Then it starts raining. Then the umpires say, let's stop. And here we are. Here we are. Now let's get to McNeil. So this one was surprising. Jeff McNeil didn't play the second game of the doubleheader last night, the game or the game on Wednesday, the game I was at. I didn't really think much of it. And then on Thursday... He was placed on the injured list with what they're calling a partially torn UCL. Now, a partially torn UCL usually means Tommy John surgery. That's a serious thing. Jason Dominguez of the Yankees has had it. We know about all the pitchers that have had it. But, and I tried my darndest. I went on the internet doing a lot of research on this. It's not his throwing shoulder. I want want to remind you, it is his left shoulder. So the Mets are saying PPR treatment, no surgery recommended, should be, go to, should be good to go for spring training. What I don't know, and I was sitting there on the internet trying to figure it out, is what if he does need Tommy John surgery, but it's his non-throwing shoulder? Like, it's still serious. Batting, it will still affect you. But in terms of recovery time, would it actually be less because it's not his throwing shoulder? I don't know the answer. But it's important that the Mets not F this up for two reasons. Number one, I think is value trade-wise, if you are a proponent of trading Jeff McNeil, I don't know what it does to his value, but it certainly can't help. And then the second part is, if you're not trading him, and I kind of tend to think they're not, the more I think about it, because I think of his value as a player of his ability to play anywhere in the outfield and look good at it, his ability to play second base. Push comes to shove, I doubt they're going to trade him, especially coming off a mediocre year and especially coming off an injury. But they're going to need him next year. And the last thing you want to have to start 2024 is in the middle of February, they realize, yeah, he needs surgery. And now he's out for the year. Like, Is that not a fear when you hear partially torn UCL, but he doesn't need surgery? But again, just a reminder, It's his left shoulder, and great job by the Mets. I guess Buck was specific about it. The time the injury occurred was identified, which was that weird play, if you remember. It was on September 11th on that Monday. So I don't know how many people watched this game because it was Aaron Rodgers' four-snap performance as a Jet. Remember that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, we all remember. But there was a play at second base 
Tommy Pham actually made the throw. And there was a really awkward collision slide at second base with Jeff McNeil. And his shoulder got banged around. And that's where he got hurt. Which leads to a follow-up question. Why was he playing for the last two weeks? I mean, or two, yeah, two weeks. Because that was September 11th. So that is, you know, 16 days later before the Mets realize, hey, what's going on here? So it's a fair question to wonder about, but it, it sucks. I think when a guy gets hurt at the end of the year, you kind of shrug, like even Nimmo leaving this game, you shrug and say, well, it's the off season. It's not a big deal, whatever. Season's over. Uh, let's move on. The fear is when you hear it can be serious where it could actually impact you in 2024. And while the report right now from the Mets is no surgery, he should be fine, what we need to figure out, and I'm curious about, is what if he does need surgery, how different would his recovery time be because it is his non-throwing shoulder? That, I don't know the answer to. But we have approached the final series of the year, the New York Mets against the Philadelphia Phillies, a completely meaningless series at City Field because the Phillies are going to the postseason, and that's pretty much locked. It is locked up. Nothing's going to change that as they are kind of approaching a 90-win season in which they'll be wildcard team number one with home games in Philadelphia. And really, what are we approaching? You know, trying to avoid 90 losses as if that means anything. It really doesn't. You know, where they are in the standings because of the lottery, I've given up caring about it because it is a lottery. We all know the situation about where they could be moved draft pick wise if they don't pick within the top six, but it's crazy to worry about, well, where are they with the pirates? Where are they with this? It doesn't matter. It's a lottery. We'll find out after the season, whenever the hell they have this lottery. And I forgot when they do have this lottery. I should look into that. In fact, I will. I'll Google that at some point. We'll talk about it on the last Rico. But right now, it's just about, you know what this final series is about? I'll be honest with you, especially at home. This final series is about saying goodbye. Saying goodbye to this god-awful season, but saying goodbye to the companion that is baseball. Because while the playoffs are fun, and I'll be into it, and some of us will be into it, the everyday nature of seeing your baseball team is about to end. And I think last year we never kind of thought about it because you didn't want it to end and you weren't sure when it was going to end. But when you have a crappy season like this, you know it's ending. And the weekend against the Philadelphia Phillies will be the end. One other thing, and this will get into the offseason discussions, and we'll have a lot of them. I started writing down all the different Ricos we'll be doing during the offseason. I'm very excited. Very, very excited. Including our playoff guide of rooting. That one I'm really pumped up about. But there was a report a few days ago that the San Diego Padres plan to reduce their payroll to about $200 million. And so when you hear that, I think the first reaction is, yeah, baby, what do we got? Who are they selling? One guy that's going to be a question is Juan Soto. Juan Soto is without a shadow of a doubt going to be at least a big trade rumor for this offseason. Doesn't mean the Padres are definitely going to trade him, but it makes sense that it's a possibility with one year left of control before Soto is a free agent. And the amount of long-term deals they have already locked up between Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. and Xander Bogarts and Yu Darvish. Like, it would make sense that if they haven't worked out an extension now, and they're not going to, 
Soto will definitely get to free agency. I'd be stunned if he ever agreed to a contract now that the Padres would have to entertain training him. And does he make sense for the Mets? Look, Juan Soto makes sense for anybody. He is a tremendous offensive player. I will give you this warning about Juan Soto. And don't take this as the Mets shouldn't trade for him or the Yankees shouldn't trade for him. Juan Soto will piss you off very quickly. What I mean by that is he's a great player. He will put up the big numbers. He will hit 30 home runs. He will drive in 100 runs. He has the best eye in all of Major League Baseball. But I believe sometimes when a guy is that patient and a guy looks for his pitch as consistently as Juan Soto, and you're acquiring him. He's not your guy. You haven't seen him develop. You're paying him a ton of money. You're giving up a ton of prospects to get him. That there will be this rip of Juan Soto. And this goes for Met fans or Yankee fans. There will be this rip of Juan swing the bleeping bat. I was talking to my dad about this at City the other night. And he said, do you mean like Vogelback? And I said, no, nah, it's not like Vogelback because Soto's better. Like no one's saying he's not a great player. He's a great player. But sometimes those kinds of players can be frustrating. Joey Votto can be frustrating. You know who I remember hearing this about? Dog. When I was a kid, and I listened to Mike and the Mad Dog, Chris Russo used to say this about Wade Box. He would say, and I'm not doing the dog imitation because it's just going to, all right, fine. And there's a Wade Box. Always looking for a walk. I always looking for a walk. Sometimes you got to swing the back and get a hit. And I remember that as a kid. And I was like, I kind of get what he's saying. Like, walks aren't bad, obviously, especially in this day and age. We love the walk. I mean, Jet Williams is a top, top prospect, mainly because he's got the greatest batter's eye ever for a 19-year-old. So it's not that it's a bad thing. It's that I'm telling you, you save this audio, this will happen. It can sometimes be frustrating. Yeah, I can hear it now. This guy wants $500 million, and all he does is look for a walk. Soto will be a great Met, or will, I I hope would be a great Met, but he will be a frustrating Met. I'm just putting that out there. I'm just letting you know that's a friendly warning. As far as the rest of the Padres, here are the guys to really keep an eye on. They're free agents because they're not going to re-sign them. If they're not going to $200 million, or if that's their cutoff, that means that their free agents are gone. And here are the free agents to keep an eye on. Blake Snell has run away with the National League Cy Young. I thought a few weeks ago it was Justin Steele's. I think Blake Snell has earned it. I would stay away from Blake Snell. Congratulations on your second Cy Young. Doing it in a different league, which is an amazing accomplishment. And I can't deny what Blake Snell's done down the stretch. He's been unhittable. But the walks, the long, long at-bats, the high pitch counts, the fact that he never goes seven innings, you're going to have to give this guy an insane amount of money, and it reeks of a disaster. It reeks of it going badly. So Blake Snell, hard pass. Number two, Josh Hader. The appeal of Josh Hader is the super pen. I mean, who the hell wouldn't want a bullpen that features two of the best closers in all of Major League Baseball? But I have a concern about Josh Hader. I have a concern that Josh Hader can't get four outs. That's a thing. Like, Josh Hader doesn't want to pitch more than an inning. And if Josh Hader comes to New York, 
Is he going to be okay with the fact that he's not the closer? Now, Buck Showalter, assuming he is the manager of this team next year, and I, I don't know if that's the case, but even if he isn't, whether it's Craig Council, Buck, or someone else, we now live in a world in which a guy will predominantly pitch the ninth inning, but he may not always pitch the ninth inning. Sometimes you may use, as we saw with Diaz last year, you may use him in the eighth inning. So it's not Hader will never pitch the ninth inning, but would he be okay in a bullpen like that? And also financially, the Mets may spend a lot of money, and that's great. Are they going to be willing to put out that kind of contract for another reliever? So they will be stacked with relievers that they're paying a fortune to. I don't think they'll do it. I think they'll add relievers. I do not think they'll be aggressive for Josh Hader. And the third guy to keep an eye on, because he does have a player option, is Seth Lugo. Should we? I'm coming home. I'm coming. (laughs) You know what's funny, though, about Seth Lugo? Seth Lugo had a good year. Uh, We had an email about him a couple weeks ago, so we talked about that contract and really why I didn't have any regrets about the Mets not keeping him. I look at the Met offseason in terms of the kind of pitchers they need to add this way. I want a top-line guy, specifically that's Yamamoto. I want a project guy, high-reward, kind of a low-risk deal. That's Severino. In my eyes, that's the example, Severino. And then I would want like just a solid back of the rotation. That guy feels reliable. And those are very tough to find. Now, I think Jose Quintana is like that, but someone else. And Lugo could fit that if you believe that what he did this year is kind of what he's going to be. I would love to add three starting pitchers during the offseason. I kind of think it'll be two, but three would be very, very nice. But we have a lot of time to get into this offseason. We will as this regular season ends, which will happen Sunday. On Sunday, when this season ends, We will do a podcast wrapping up the three games against Philadelphia, and then instantly, it's going to happen on Sunday, right after we talk about the series, we instantly, since the playoff teams are set, give you a guide to the postseason, because we don't have a lot of time. Now, caveat on this whole thing. What if the Mets have to play five minutes on Monday? (laughs) We will give you a podcast on Monday if they have to play five minutes. We'll also do what we call the exit interview of 2023. What happened? The good, the bad, the ugly, kind of our first last thoughts on this season. Last first thoughts on the 2023 season as it gets put in the bank. Also, your thoughts are greatly appreciated. The Rico B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. Very much appreciated. But we will spend a lot more time talking about this team, what went right, what went wrong. Very much that went right, and obviously begin to preview what will be a very, very interesting offseason. Again, I want to thank the Major League Baseball umpires for giving us the possibility of chaos. We love chaos. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 